It is good to be back with you. I actually drove back yesterday from Oregon and uh, made it back here in time to be with you. Had a great time up there visiting one of my uh, very best friends and one of our missionaries, Matt Bullock, who is a missionary with Greater Europe Mission in Germany. We're actually going there, or supposed to be going there in August to go visit them. And uh, we had a great time doing uh, the usual things, uh, driving fast cars. And uh, we actually did a little bit of shooting at the range uh, and um, other things as well, uh, including uh, just talking about the goodness of God in our lives encouraging one another to lead our families well and to last in the ministries that God has given us. It was a a really special and and good time together. Before that, though, I had the opportunity to take my my oldest daughter camping down in San Clemente. We camped down there at the beach and had a really good time. Got to teach her how to skateboard on a skateboard that I had actually made years ago, so that was kind of special. Then I got to spend some time with my, my wife, and we got to go to a really, really good restaurant that uh, Rebecca Araujo now works at, and uh, that was fantastic. Um, but I also got to uh, make several trips to the local hardware store. Yes. <laughs> got to fill my car with wood. The smell of that, ah, it's so good. Got to bring out the power tools and cut things and hammer things, and it was so good. By the time that I had a chance to come back to the office, my back was aching, and my arms were all cut up, and my hands were just calloused, and oh, so good. <laughs> so good. Any, anyone out there experience that kind of, that's the kind of vacation that you like? Oh my goodness, it was, it was fantastic. You know, as I look back on my childhood, childhood to where I'm at now, the question that I, that I used to have it isn't a question anymore. I used to be thinking, who is Jared? What, what is this guy made for? What, is he, what, is, what am I into? What are my interests? That's not a question anymore. I know now who I am. I'm, I'm a guy that likes to build things. I like to create things. I'm the type of person that has just this deep-seated need to use my hands and my brain to make things. And it can be really costly. <laughs> and it can be very frustrating. And it can, sometimes it's just exhausting. And sometimes I'm, I'm laying flat on my back because I should not have done this. And yet the process of it and, and the result of it is just so fulfilling for me. And, and it, it's like life-giving and energizing. And when I build something, it gives me that sense that I'm participating in something that I was made for. I was, I was built for this. Built to build. <laughs> and some of you can relate. Some of you love building things as well, and you love that sense of accomplishment that you get. And the materials that we use may be different, right? Some of us use wood and nails. Some of us use uh, flour and baking soda. And some of us build things uh, with shovels and, and soil, and other people use keyboards and source code. Some of us use nurseries and, and strollers. 
Some of us use fitness equipment, right, and protein shakes. There are a lot of different ways to build, a lot of different builders out there. And I, but I think that if we, if we stopped and we thought about who we are, we would realize more and more and more that there are many of us, many more of us who are, are builders than we, we once initially thought. We build buildings, we build businesses, we build arts, we build crafts, we build cultures, curriculums, forts. <laughs> Families, so many of us are builders, and, and as we build, I think we, we, we take after the, the one who made us, the maker himself. You know, the very, very first verse in the Bible, the very first thing it says about God is that he built something. He created something. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He's the creator. He's the builder. It's the thing that started us off in this life, and it's actually the thing that he continues to do even now. Now, on the seventh day, God rested, and yet the building continues He's still creating. He's still making. You know, the people that Peter was writing to they had placed their trust in Jesus Christ, and now they were paying for it. And they were experiencing all kinds of hardship. The world was not a, a positive place for them. We once lived in a world where, where acknowledging Christ actually was a beneficial thing to you in society. You actually place your trust in Christ, and you go to church, and everyone says, oh, yes, good, upstanding member of society. I'm going to go to that person's business. And so we flourish together. But then it turned to sort of a kind of a neutral place where being a Christian was kind of this, eh, you know, it's okay, it's, it's not necessarily good, not very, not necessarily bad. But we're coming into, in fact, we're really kind of solidly there now, where placing your trust in Christ is actually a negative thing. It has negative results in our world to the point where if you make your faith known in the public square, there's a very good chance that it's not going to go well. And it wasn't going well for these people. They were found facing mounting pressure Threats were getting real. The culture was becoming hostile. Even the government was beginning to turn on them and formally set its targets on these people just because they placed their trust in Christ. But Peter wants them to know that God is not done with them. Not by a long shot. He, he, God's not this, this salesman that just wants you to sign on the dotted line, and then he moves on to the next sucker. That's not who God is. No, he's actively doing a work in the people that he has called out of darkness and to himself. Philippians 1.6 says, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And so there is a beginning, yes, but it is ongoing, it's an ongoing work. It's an ongoing molding and shaping and developing until that day when you are finally with him and see him face to face where it will finally be complete. And he is building a people for something very, very special, and something very, very specialized, something very, very specific. Let's look at what Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Just two verses this morning. We'll just read through them. As you come to him, 
a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. In just two short verses, Peter lets these Christians know that they are being built up into a people that has been set apart and empowered to worship God in an acceptable way. We're going to unpack that a little bit this morning. We're going to take a look at God's ongoing construction project. And I'd like us to ask ourselves, where are we at in that process? Where are we at in that process? Notice the the very beginning. He says, as you come to him. As you come to him. That is not past tense, is it? This This is an ongoing thing. It's something that is happening right now. Trusting Jesus. It means continually moving toward him. It results in continually moving toward him. Once a person places their trust in Jesus, they don't, they don't just uh, take the documents that they sign and file them away in the family file cabinet or the family safe and then lock away and we don't deal with that later on or ever again. No, 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 no. It's, it's not that you, you check the little box on your list and then move on with your life. No, for them, coming to Jesus, yes, it is something that took place at a, at a point in history. Maybe you can look back and you can pinpoint. You can, maybe you have the date and time and place when you placed your trust in Jesus Christ. Many people can't. I can't, I can't do that. But that doesn't mean it didn't happen at what one particular t- time where I started trusting in Jesus. It happened at one point where I realized that Jesus Christ is my only hope. That what he did on the cross, just as we have sung about just a few minutes ago, is the only thing that can wash away my sin and make me right with God. Praise God for that. It's something that happened in the past. And yet, from that point on... I need to be, I should be, if Christ truly is my salvation and my life is in him and he is my life, then my eyes are constantly looking at him. And I'm constantly moving toward him. As Peter says, as you come to him. That could also be translated as you draw near to him. Christians, they move toward Jesus. Are you moving toward Jesus in your daily life? Or does it become some sort of a standstill? Or maybe you're just kind of waiting through life and doing your thing. Is it a passionate pursuit? Or is it just something that you've, you've, you've checked a box and you've moved on with your life? Is Jesus the source of your life? Is he the one in whom you find your peace and your hope and your joy and where your soul finds rest? Augustine confessed, you've you've made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find, until they rest in you. And that's something that I need to experience each and every day. You? Yes? 
We all do, don't we? As we walk through the, the, the crazy and the strenuous and the frustrating and the exhausting moments of our day, we continually need to be moving towards the source of peace and hope and joy and rest. There are a couple vacation spots that I think Melissa's getting a little frustrated with me, uh, constantly wanting to go back there. But I, but I want to go because they're, they're, they're familiar and they're, they're good and they're, they're easy and they bring rest to me. Do you have a place like that? Where it's just like, this, I can rest here. For some of us, it's just our homes. And that's the way I felt driving back from Oregon the other day. I'm, I'm on the road, and there were rest stops along the way, but you get to those stops, and you realize this isn't that restful. In fact, this is nothing like my bathroom at home. Whew. I can make it. Eight more hours. <laughs> Rest is so important. Jesus said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. I'm gentle, lowly in heart. I will give, and you will find rest for your souls. He gives us the rest that we're looking for, yes? <laughs> are we moving toward him? He also gives us the food that we need. The food, in that same chapter, John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Just like we keep coming back to the kitchen. At least I keep coming back to the kitchen over and over again, often at 10 o'clock at night. I'm hungry. I want something to eat because that's where I get nourished. Are we coming back to Jesus? You know, it's interesting in, in these verses, Peter doesn't command us to come to Jesus, it's, it's just an, an assumed thing. As you come to him, as you are coming to him, drawing near to him, he, he just kind of assumes it. As you come to him, in other words, this is what you're doing, Christians. This is what you, you're doing. You started, and now it's ongoing. You're, you're, you're learning Christ from God's word as you digest it and you search it out. You're, you're relying on him as you lean on him in prayer. You're, you're finding out just how powerful his love is as you try to show that same love to others and you realize it's a lot harder than you maybe thought. You're, you're coming to see just how perfectly righteous he is as you strive for righteousness in your own life and you realize that's a really, really tall order. Or you're discovering how awesome his provision is as you do life as a, as a member of his church and you just see how much he has provided for you in just the other believers that are a part of that church, you're drawing near. There's no standing still in the Christian life. No cruise control. <laughs> Trusting in Jesus is the result of continually, it results in continually moving toward him. Well, who are we moving toward? We're moving towards Christ. How does Peter describe Christ? Well, he says, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. He's a living stone. We're talking about building materials here. Let's talk about building materials for a moment. Back in the first century, the strongest, the tallest, the largest buildings, they were constructed out of stone. Big, solid stone. And Peter says Jesus is like a living stone. You know, the Old Testament describes God as that only one strong and faithful rock, the one that you can depend on. 
Now Peter here quotes Isaiah 28, 16, where it's prophesied that Jesus would be a stone, a cornerstone, actually, not just a rock out there in the field, but a stone that serves a specific purpose. A cornerstone was the most important part of a building. It sets where, uh, in, in such a way that it's going to define the lines going out from it and how that building is constructed. It's going to take a significant portion of the weight. It's going to be that essential foundational piece upon which the building rests. And Jesus is that foundation upon which the church rests. But he's more than just a, a, a lifeless stone and more than just a monument. Melissa and I got to go out to the Huntington Library uh, just recently. And we're out there and we go into the, the library of the Huntington Library, at least I think that's what it was called, the big building that had books in it, so I assume. And they had in there some copies of some of the, the founding documents of the United States. And it was just, this kind of stuff fascinates me. I'm not a real booky kind of guy, but to just see these things, you just go, wow. And you see the signatures on them, and you realize how foundational they are and what milestones some of these just sheets of paper with ink on them are. But they're, they're just documents, they're just there. When I looked at it, I'm like, wow, that's, that's a big monument. That's, that's an important monument in the history of our country. But Jesus is so much more than just a monument. It says he is a living stone. Jesus is, is not just the one who stamps our salvation, and we look back on him, and we, maybe we go visit his grave, and we go, wow, yeah, wow, he was such a significant figure. Or maybe we see a statue built to Jesus, and we go, yes, wow, you know, well, I'm very thankful for Jesus. No, he is living. He's risen from the dead, alive and active today, gives life to everyone who believes in him. He is a living stone to who, on, on which we continually find uh, uh, solidity from, but also life from. In, in, in our eyes and in God's eyes, he's chosen and precious. He's the rock upon which we stand, upon which we build our lives. The, the, the one which, you know, the storms come and they pound against us, but we're built on them, that rock. But it's important for us to realize that, that not everyone who has looked at Jesus has looked at him that way. Chosen, precious. No, Peter says he was rejected by men. Rejected by men. We saw that in our study of the Gospel of Mark. Do you recall that if you were here with us? The Jewish leaders, many of the Jewish people, they had decided Jesus didn't fit the bill when it came to the type of Messiah, the type of anointed one sent from God that they were looking for. He didn't, he didn't really measure up. And they wanted a Messiah who was going to take on their oppressors. We're not the great nation that we once thought ourselves to be. We're, we're being subjected here. We're being oppressed here. We want someone who's going to help us make Israel great, throw off our oppressors. They didn't want a, a Messiah who was going to shine light on their own darkness. 
to tell them that they were in need of a Savior. No, they didn't want that. They didn't want to come to grips with the reality that the real deliverance that they needed was the deliverance from the grip of their sin-captivated hearts. And so they rejected him. They crucified him. He had no place in their lives. Certainly there was no way he could be the foundational stone upon which the kingdom of God rested. Not, not this guy. We're living at a time where um, politics are becoming a major focus of some American churches. Many churches are gravitating, many people are gravitating towards churches that are increasingly political. And I think that's for very good reasons. One of the reasons is that the issues that have been uh, thrust into the forefront of politics are uh, distinctly moral. Distinctly moral. And they're, and they're ones that the Bible clearly speaks to. We see things going on in our world and bills that are being presented and we go, ah, uh, there's no question that that is pure evil. This is not good. You look at bills like Assembly Bill 2223 concerning abortion, and you go, oh my goodness. Something needs to be done about this. Something must be done about this. And not only that, we're witnessing in our country the erosion and all-out war against religious liberties in our nation. A nation that was so intentional about establishing those religious liberties at its inception, and we're seeing them threatened, and we're seeing them slowly peeled away. And for Christians, these are big, relevant, crucial issues. And it's no wonder why some pastors are getting so caught up in leading their churches to rally and engage on political fronts. Makes perfect sense. Absolutely. I understand it. But before we go all in and make this a place, this church, a center for political warfare, I think it's important that we think carefully about a few things. Think with me for, for just a few minutes here. First of all, I do not believe that Christians should close their doors and shut their blinds and ignore and shy away from knowing what is going on in their world or engaging in those things and actively being involved in politics. I don't think that's a good move for Christians. We're blessed to live in a country that actually invites us, invites citizens to participate in the political process, participate through what, our, our votes, we can call our representatives. We can sign petitions. We can even sign recalls. We can do all sorts. We can, we can uh, candidate for office. We can do all sorts of different things to try to influence the world. Did you know the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 22? There was a point where he was about to get beaten by the Romans, and he says, wait a second, guys. I'm a Roman citizen. He calls upon his citizenship and, and says, because of my citizenship, you cannot treat me in this way. Yes, he was part of the kingdom of God, but he was also a Roman citizen, which afforded him certain privileges. 
And he had no, no qualms about using those privileges. It's not a bad thing. And I think the same is true when it comes to our citizenship. We have certain privileges here. They are like gifts from God and opportunities for us to speak and be active in that regard. I think that Christians should take full advantage of that. And what's more, I think that they should go ahead and call their government to task when their government decides it's not going to operate in a way that it has defined itself. And it has said, we are going to operate this way. And I think they should call their government to task when the government says, you know what, you are citizens here. Yeah, we said you have these rights, but now we're going to start taking them away because of this or because of that. And I think it's the privilege and right of citizens to exercise their citizenship. We should by all means take full advantage of them, especially when we have opportunity to honor God and love our neighbors by moving laws in the land to, into better alignment with God's word. Our neighbors won't think that's loving. <laughs> they may say it's the exact opposite. But you and I know that what God has said in his word and alignment with him is what is good. And so it is a good thing for us to love our neighbors in that regard. That said, I believe that for pastors and elders of a church to lead their membership, to believe that the church is somehow called by God to use political engagement as a primary means of bringing about God's kingdom here on earth, I think it's at best a misstep. I think it's likely a distortion. I think at worst, it could be, in certain cases, a, perv a perversion of God's sacred call for the church. See, right here in 1 Peter 2, we, we see that we are a people who have been called out of darkness, brought into the marvelous light, so that we might what? So that we might proclaim the excellencies of the one who brought us, uh, brought us out of darkness and brought us into his marvelous light. Jesus bestowed on us a sacred task, not of fighting Rome, but of making disciples. We see in 1 Peter 5 too, it's the job of pastors, it's the job of elders, not to stir up their people to sign petitions, but to shepherd those people. That's one of the reasons we voted all the way back in January about a new elder form of church governance. The people need to be shepherded. We see in, first, in, in 2 Timothy 4.2 that pastors and elders, they're called to preach faithfully the word of God. This is a calling that they've been given. In 1 Timothy 1.14, they're called to protect their congregations by guarding the purity of God's truth. And Paul said to the Corinthian church, this is 1 Corinthians 2.2, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. In other words, he had a singular focus, a singular focus. The one and only thing that he was absolutely concerned about and was absolutely crucial to him communicating to those people was Christ. Then, of course, there's the example of Jesus who was clearly 
not the political influence that the Jewish leaders and people wanted him to be. Now, some will say, wait a second, Jesus was actually political. Did you see when he came into the temple and he started throwing over tables? Boy, he was angry, wasn't he? Wow. Just throwing tables, pulling chairs out from underneath people. It's true, but do we remember why Jesus did those things? What was he really concerned about here? Did he get all up in arms because the Roman government was doing certain things, or was this more about the sanctity of the temple? I think he said, I know he said, my house shall be a house of prayer. And he walks in and he sees that the temple of God is not being used in the way that it was designed, that it was built for. And he was passionately opposed to that. My friends, I wonder what Jesus would do if he walked onto our campus and see, and he saw that we had become all about signing this or opposing that or propping up this political leader or getting this political leader out of office. Would he say, right on, that's what my church is all about. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying those are bad things. We're talking about emphasis here, aren't we? You and I should absolutely get out there and vote. Even if, even if we're under the impression that our votes don't matter. Here in Southern California, yeah, it kind of feels that way often. Voting for what we believe is more in line with God's truth than something else. Well, that's a way that we, we love our neighbors. If it seems like it's in line with God's, God's word, then go and, and vote and sign the petition and call those representatives, donate to that cause so much as you believe in your heart that it is a good use of God's funds, and even go run for that office. I talked to a public school teacher the other day who's so frustrated with what was going on in the public school, and I said, why don't you become, become the principal? But let's keep a few things straight. First of all, God's kingdom is not of this world. What's more, let's remember that he's the one that holds the leash. <laughs> he holds the leash on all that happens in politics and governments. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Who's in charge of this thing? Third, we're called to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, aren't we? Above any political efforts out there, our number one aim should be that Jesus Christ rule in every human heart, beginning right here with my own and your own. Is Christ ruling in your heart? Does his love pervade? Does it saturate? Does it inform everything that we think, everything that we say, everything that we do? Are we just allowing ourselves to be perpetually filled with frustration and rage because we keep tuning in to the pundits more than we tune in to the word of God? Finally, let's face it. And this, I think, is the most powerful. The real change that our world needs is not going to come in the form of legislation. I've seen it in my lifetime 
where victory has been won and legis this legislation was passed. Guess what? It was like a year or two later that everything flipped the other direction. Why was that? It's because of what's going on in here. And we have a society whose hearts are not submitted to Jesus Christ. Human hearts need transformation. Our world needs Jesus. They're rejecting the life that he offers. Let, let's not any of us allow our own agendas to distract us from the work that has been given to us in making Jesus known. That's what you and I were made for. We're made for this. That's what we're built for. That you and I, God's people, might be a spiritual house, a holy temple designed for the special purpose of worshiping God and pointing others to his glory. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. You, your life, Joined together with the lives of other Christians in your church, it stands upon the foundation of Jesus Christ and is being built up as a spiritual house, just like the temple was a spiritual house. Each one of us is like a living stone. We're being fused together on top of the living stone, Jesus Christ, and we form that temple of God. Paul said, do you not know you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy. You are that temple. Again, what was the temple? Well, it was the place where God came and he dwelt among his people. It was the place where he was worshipped among his people. In the same way, Christians are that spiritual house in which God dwells and is worshipped. Does the preservation of the ability of God's temple as the collective body of believers gathered to worship God, does that matter? You better believe it matters. <laughs> you're like living stones being built up as a spiritual house. Peter goes on to say, you're being built together to be a holy priesthood. What do priests do? Aside from all the negative things we see in the news. They worship and lead people to worship the one true God. Why? Because they have to? Well, it's partly their role. But I think also because they get to. Do you realize? I was looking up one, one commentary on this passage. And, and the title of the commentary, I expected it to be something about spiritual houses or, or the priesthood of believers or something like that. It, it, the title was something like the privileges of being a Christian. We get to do this. If you're thinking about, uh, when you think about priesthood, if you're thinking about the Roman Catholic priesthood, you stop right there. That's not what we're talking about here. That is something entirely different. Nor is Peter necessarily equating this holy priesthood with what was in the Old Testament. It's not completely equal to that. The priests back in the day in the Old Testament were only men, only from certain, a certain tribe. Peter here is telling us that all Christians are priests. Doesn't matter what their family background was. Doesn't matter if you're a man or if you're a woman. It doesn't matter what your socioeconomic status is. If you placed your trust in Christ, then you're being built. You are being built into a holy 
priesthood. Now, the Old Testament priesthood does give us kind of some insight into who we are as priests. The Old Testament priests were chosen. They were chosen by God. Individuals who were chosen. We learned that at the beginning of our study in 1 Peter that God has chosen us as well. We are chosen. You did not choose me, Jesus said. I chose you, appointed you that you should go bear fruit. Priests are chosen. Secondly, they're cleansed. After they were chosen Old Testament priests, they had to go through cleansing rites before they could do all, any of that priestly stuff that priests do. If you want to know more about that, go to Leviticus chapter 8, 6 to 36. You will find details, lots of details. We won't go on to them here. Those who trust in Christ are cleansed, aren't they? They're cleansed. Paul writes in Titus 2.14 that Jesus gave himself up for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. They're chosen. They're cleansed. We go through life all the time looking at the mistakes we have made, looking at sometimes the downright bad decisions we have made, and we feel dirty. And we need to come back to the foot of the cross and realize that his blood has washed that away and we are clean before him. Chosen, cleansed, clothed. The priests had to wear special clothes given to them so that they could carry out their duties. Christians today, we don't have any special clothes, thank God. Nor do we have any special sacred holy underwear. At least I don't. Maybe you do. But we're covered in the righteousness of Christ. He took our sin and we are covered in his righteousness. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is an incredible thing. Friends, the, time, the times that, that, uh, that I fail and I look in the mirror and I realize who I am truly on my own apart from Christ, it is not a pretty sight. And then I'm reminded of the righteousness that I have in Christ that I go, I need to worship him. They're also anointed priests in the Old Testament were anointed. Moses took anointing oil. He took the blood of the sacrifice on the altar and he, he, he sprinkled it upon them. It, it set them apart. Made it clear to everyone else that they were to be holy. And in a similar way, Christians have been anointed by God's Holy Spirit. They're, they're filled with his power, right? Acts 1.8. They're set apart to do his work. There was an anointing. If you've placed your trust in Jesus Christ, his spirit has anointed you, now lives within you, setting you apart, empowering you. You are being built. Yes, you. And yes, me. Growing up, I was the kid who thought, God will do stuff with those people because they are they're smart, they have a quick tongue, they are good looking, they have this or that, their father's a pastor, whatever it was. And I looked at myself, this geeky looking kid wearing frumpy clothing and big bottle cap glasses and socks that almost went to my knees and going, I, I'm just going to be getting by in this life. No, we, God's people, are being built 
into a spiritual house together and a holy priesthood. But what is it for? Every project has a purpose, doesn't it? Everything you built is built for a reason. Over the vacation, I was able to build an arbor, which I wasn't sure I was going to be able to do, but I built it, and it's actually still standing. And uh, it, it serves a purpose. It makes the yard look kind of cool, I think so at least. And then we have grapevines that we, we need something for them to grow on, and so we're going to attach these grapevines probably this afternoon, actually, and then you'll start growing up, and grapes will grow off this thing. And when one of my little girls, they pass through, they're going to be able to get a snack outside. And that is really important because I don't mind if they make a mess outside. <laughs> the arbor serves a purpose. You and I have been created or being built for a purpose, being built up as a spiritual house and a holy priesthood. Why? What for? What's the purpose, Peter? Don't miss this. It's that we might offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The Old Testament priests, they were offering sacrifices. They were offering animal sacrifices. And those sacrifices, they reminded God's people, well, for one, they reminded God's people of God's holiness. God is holy. You are not holy. And you need to be made right with God. They were monuments testifying to the fact that forgiveness for sin doesn't come cheap, does it? It doesn't come cheap at all. For a sinful life to be forgiven, it required a life. What a sobering reminder that must have been. Can you imagine? We're going to take communion in just a, just a few minutes, and we're going to remember the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. And This is a powerful picture for us. But to have been there and to have been witnessing these sacrifices being made, that would have been, for me, somewhat disturbing. It's because of Jesus, though, that we don't have to make animal sacrifices anymore. It's because of Jesus Christ that Christians now can offer acceptable sacrifices to God. You know, there are a lot of people out there these days who are doing a lot of good things. You see them, some of them have gobs and gobs of money, and they are throwing their money towards this and towards that, and, and it's actually, in some ways, we agree, that's a positive thing, that's a good thing, you're helping people, you're fresh water for these people, and, and, and better lifestyle for these people, these people aren't as oppressed as they used to be, that's good, but Isaiah makes it clear that all of those things don't measure up in God's eyes. They're actually like filthy rags, it says in Isaiah 64, 6, and that's because all of them are being done by condemned, contaminated, corrupt hearts. And so they don't count. Boy, that's a bummer. But so many good intentions and so many tremendous resources are being, being poured out here. Wow, that's so sad. But those who have been washed clean have been made right with God by the blood of Jesus Christ. They are being built up for the purpose of offering spiritual sacrifices that are absolutely pleasing to God. Not because these people are so spiritual on their own. Why? It's because of Jesus Christ. Because by grace through faith, Christ has done a transformational work in their hearts. He's cleansed them of sin. He's clothed them of righteousness. And he's anointed them with his spirit. And so you now 
And I now have been divinely empowered and appointed to fulfill an all-important purpose built up to offer spiritual sacrifices, spiritual acts of worship. As Christians move towards Christ, they are being built into a people set apart and empowered to acceptably worship God. What are those sacrifices? What does that include? What does that entail? The Bible actually points us to several different things that, in, that are included in spiritual sacrifices. The first thing, Romans 12, 1 to 2, it's our bodies. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Boy, so often we take what we do here on Sunday mornings and what we do outside of these walls and we separate them out. And we reserve spiritual sacrifices for this room where we're singing praises. And yet so very often anything goes outside the walls. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Notice we're not giving dead sacrifices here. Christ died for us. He's the one who made that sacrifice. We're the living sacrifices. Our very lives, all that we are, once turned away in rebellion against God, now is turned towards him and offered. And that includes what we do with our bodies, what we do with our minds, what we take in with our eyes and our ears, what we think, what we feel, even those hopes and dreams, doesn't it? All of it submitted to God. The greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all. It includes our bodies, spiritual sacrifices. It also looks like our praises. Hebrews 13, 15 says, through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. When you and I praise God, we're giving a spiritual sacrifice. We're, we're celebrating who he is. We're celebrating what he does. And then it's glorifying to him. Thirdly, our good works and gifts of generosity. Those are spiritual sacrifices. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Do you think about that? As you're serving other people, people who have been specially made by him, people who may rub you the wrong way and wrong you in the worst way, and yet they are made in the image of God. And as you use your resources, even who you are, to bring good to them in a tangible way, you are showing them the goodness of your creator. Spiritual sacrifice. Fourth, People we have led to faith in Christ are spiritual sacrifices. Paul points that out. He's talking about the people that he shared the gospel with and that he shared uh, the truth of Jesus Christ with and how they responded. And he writes this in Romans 15, but on, the, on some points I have written to you very boldly by the way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And so that in and of itself, people who have come to faith through meeting us, through talking to us, through seeing our lives, that's a spiritual sacrifice. 
Fifthly, sacrificial love, Ephesians 5, 1 to 2. Be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love as Christ loved us, gave himself up for us. What is it? It's a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. What greater privilege than to walk in that same sacrificial love that we have been given and shown in Jesus Christ? as you lay down your life and you give of yourself, something that is not very valued in our society today, walked over, stomped on. When I first went into ministry as a junior high guy, the youth pastor came up to me and he's like, you know, I really should have gone to the hardware store before I uh, met with you today. Um, I, I was going to pick up a bucket of yellow paint and a paintbrush and I was going to have you lay down here. I was just going to paint stripes on your back so it was easier for people to walk back and forth all over you. It's kind of what life feels like sometimes. And that's not valued. We're to stand up for ourselves. And we see people doing that on the freeway all the time. And yet we're called to give spiritual sacrifices. And part of that is sacrificial love. And that means putting aside our wants and our hopes, even our dreams for the good of others. You show the, the world a little bit of what the Savior is like as you do what he has done for you. What a countercultural idea that is. And what would things look like if we actually did that? How many marriages would steer clear of disaster? How many unborn babies would be saved regardless of whatever grotesque and horrible perverse laws are on the books? How many friendships would be restored? How many souls mended, hearts healed, battered and bruised, lives saved. Friends, our world is broken. It's broken. It needs Jesus. That's what it needs. Yes, voting, and yes, getting on this bandwagon or this bandwagon, that may be a really good thing to do, and I don't discourage you from doing that, but the priority and the calling on our lives must be Jesus Will you show it to them by the way that you live down, lay down your life for their good? Finally, spiritual sacrifices look like prayer. <laughs> Revelation 8 gives us a glimpse into heaven. And an angel is there. And he's mixing incense with the prayers of the saints on the altar of the throne, before the throne of God. And it says this, And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hand. So often we think of prayer just as a means of communication. It's a way for us to share what we need, <laughs> sometimes get what we want. But the prayers of God's people, his holy priesthood, are a spiritual sacrifice to him. They demonstrate the faith of God's people. They testify to the fact that Christ has accomplished a work within them and their hearts have been softened and turned back toward their maker. It's powerful. Friends, God is a builder. And if you and I are in Christ, we're being built up for these things. Chosen, cleansed, clothed, anointed for this. It's a high calling, highest calling. 
They rejected Jesus Christ. In the sight of God, he's chosen and precious. And really, the sight of God is the only thing that matters. He's the foundation upon which we live and are being built up as God's temple, the place where he dwells, and the priesthood which points to his glory. The author of the hymn, Rock of Ages, I think there might be a movie about that, but this is the hymn, Rock of Ages, cleft for me. He was a man by the name of Augustus Topletty. And he prayed some words that I think are very, very fitting for us as we prepare our hearts for communion. I'd like to invite those who are serving communion, come on, come on forward. But I'd also like to invite the rest of us to just listen to the words of Augustus' prayer. And then I'd like you to invite you to spend a few moments with your eyes closed and your heads bowed, saying your own prayers presenting your own spiritual sacrifice this morning. And then we'll disperse the elements and take communion together. Let's pray. Augustus wrote, O Lord, we desire to adore your name, which is excellent in all the earth, and whose glory is above the heavens. You are the maker and disposer of all things, and for your sovereign pleasure, it is that they still exist and were at first created. Your hands have made and fashioned us, and all that we enjoy comes from you. As we are the workmanship of your power, O oh, make us likewise your spiritual workmanship, created anew in Christ Jesus unto holiness and true righteousness. Give proof that you have formed us for yourself by causing us to show forth your praise and making us to live to glory as we do every day, live upon your bounty. Amen.